Well, welcome to the Super Tuesday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Good to have you along for the ride today. Welcome back after a nice long holiday weekend. Hope you had a wonderful time to be together with family and friends. And, of course, if you did not get a chance to hear our Memorial Day special that we aired yesterday on the program, obviously, uh, I encourage you to check it out, especially uh, you can go to thebottomlineshow.com and find it there, especially when it comes to the information about Memorial Day itself, the holiday and how many people don't really realize what the the basis of the day is and was. And it's one of those areas. I'll just I'll kind of give you the, the short version. What we celebrate now as Memorial Day started out as something called Decoration Day right at the end of the Civil War. And there were people in the South who were slave families who were looking to uh, mark graves for their war dead and, uh, you know, in some cases, the bodies were just buried. I mean, there's still there's a church in Virginia right now that is uh, doing a, basically an archaeological excavation of a plot of land behind the church, the church sanctuary where the church owns, where they're trying to still find the remains of people who just vanished. If you can imagine one of your loved ones just not, I mean, <laughs> disappearing, you they never came home, you figured they were dead, but you don't have that closure. Uh, this is a great place, I think, for the church to get involved. And the Decoration Day celebrations were with slave families and some, you know, obviously newly freed families because it took place after the end of the Civil War, who would go and find these graves where their loved ones were buried, and they would decorate them. They would mark them and just, you know, as a remembrance. Well, people in the North started doing it as well, and one rather enterprising group, I think, in Albany or just outside of Albany, New York, decided that they were going to have a, a day of remembrance, a Memorial Day, as it were. And the next thing you know, here's a place where two different factions of American life, two different economic, socio, whatever, ethnic groups, can really come together and say, hey, look, Memorial Day is something that started out of a desire for the decoration of the graves of war dead from the Civil War. And in the South, there was the slave families that were driving it. And in the North, there were some uh, union families that were behind it. But, uh, you know, it, it, depending on who you talk to, it started on or about the same time. But really, the first year, it was the, the African-American slave families. Uh, then the other families started picking up on it. But this is a place where we can come together as Americans and say, look, we have a shared history here. And so this is the opportunity for us to... Uh, to do the right thing, you know, and to say, hey, let's let's honor the history of Memorial Day. Let's talk about the history of Decoration Day. And without having to point fingers and say who got here first and that type of stuff, this is a place where we in the body of Christ can talk about, you know, different aspects of unity and possibly leading to reconciliation. Now, speaking of reconciliation, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen <laughs> Just This is a Super Tuesday issue for sure. I'm not sure what's going to happen in this issue involving the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence and the Los Angeles Dodgers Baseball Club. Now, if you listened last week to the National Crawford Roundtable podcast, we spoke briefly about the this story, and I, I covered it to a certain extent when it was announced that the Los Angeles Dodgers had, I thought at the point, done the right thing by not recognizing the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, which is a group of drag queens who um, apparently are a nonprofit group. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about what we've learned about this group uh, in a moment. The video that went viral with regard to the sisters, as it were, and their mockery of Christ on the cross and the Eucharist and the Catholic Church, it was just, it was pretty breathtaking, actually, 
to think that this type of group would actually be recognized for community service by the venerable Los Angeles Dodgers organization. But apparently, and the L.A. Times ran carried a little water for the sisters last week, apparently, in addition to their crazy drag queen antics and their mockery of the Catholic faith, it turns out that the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence do, in fact, uh, lend themselves to causes for the needy and for veterans and things of that nature. It really is confusing to me that, that there would be such a contradiction in terms of, you know, what people believe with regard to this issue. Uh, there was a rather famous actress, I won't mention her name, uh, but she's in a very popular movie right now, who was talking about growing up as a kid. She goes, you know, I used to love going to those drag queen brunch things, and I think the dra- it's funny, it's humorous, it's, it's lighthearted. I'm like, well, you know, when the drag queens and the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence basically stage a, a, a black mass, if you will, of a, a reverse Eucharist, where they've got a guy portraying Jesus on the cross, and they drop in a couple of drag queens and have the drag queens give him a lap dance and knock him off the cross. I mean, it's just, there, there's nothing, I mean, I was trying to think, what would be an equivalent in today's culture that the left would actually get upset about? Because the left loves the mocking of religion. Even though they talk about, oh, we love progressive Christianity and progressive Catholicism and stuff like that, the left really does hate organized religion because that means it's competition for leftism as an organized religion. But what if there were a group of uh, this group and they were attacking the Islamic tradition. Okay, and I thought about this, and again, if you're hearing this for the first time and you're going, who is this guy? I was trying to come up with something that would be as shocking to the Islamic community as the sisters and the Jesus thing is to the Catholic community. I thought, what if they had some kind of, what if they called themselves, like instead of imams, or whatever, they called themselves yo mama or something like that, and the whole idea was to insult Mecca and uh, Muhammad and the Islamic tradition. But then they also had a soup kitchen and they helped out Vietnam veterans and veterans of any war, PTSD and stuff like that. Would the left be so quick to say, this is a good group of people and you Christians are just a bunch of bigots or you Muslims are a bunch of bigots? I don't think so. I really honestly don't. And so regardless of how much good, allegedly, this group does in the culture, I don't see the value for the Dodgers, quite frankly. I mean, anytime anybody's offering food for people who need food, you you can't say, well, shame on you for doing so. That's not the issue. The issue is what does this group stand for? They were formed in 1979 on Easter Sunday to mock Christ and to basically attack the Catholic Church. That in and of itself tells you everything you need to know. But I, I, I have to digress because here were all these people writing into the L.A. Times and they wrote this article saying, hey, they, they really did deserve this community service award, so ease up on the Dodgers here. Well, the Dodgers basically capitulated. First, they got pressure from the Catholic Voting League and other Catholic groups saying, hey, what, why are you giving these guys a community service award when they so blatantly mock the Catholic Church? So the Dodgers said, you're right, we're rescinding the award, we're rescinding the invitation, you can't come to Pride Night here at Dodger Stadium uh, sometime in June, Pride Month. 
Then, of course, the left went nuts and LGBTQ leaders had a private closed-door meeting with the Dodgers. And what happens in the modern culture? If you want to keep your modern culture cred, basically what happens is you go behind the woodshed with the LGBT mafia and you come away saying, you know what, we, we were wrong. We're, we're really sorry. And I do not understand, outside of the spiritual component, I honestly do not understand the hold that the LGBTQ community has on major corporations. We saw this happen with Bank of America and Wells Fargo and the Boy Scouts of America, which is no longer, Boy Scouts is gone. It's scouting of America and boys are, there, there's, an entire, there's an entire Boy Scout troop of girls. And they're saying, see, this is progress. It's like, no, it's not progress. But I don't understand for the life of me, when you look at the campaign contributions from gay activist groups to politicians, and it's like 5,000 here and 10,000 here. It's not like that's paying their entire salary. It's not like it's running their entire campaign. What makes these candidates and these public organizations beholden to that group that's not nearly as large or influential as the faith-based group? On the heels of announcing they'd turn tail and run and that the Dodgers would all be wearing pride caps every day for the month of June, um, Clayton Kershaw, the erstwhile venerable Dodger elder statesman of morals, values, and he's going to the Hall of Fame, tweets out that, hey, don't forget, July 30th, Dodger Stadium, it's Faith and Family Night. So one game... And Clayton Kershaw will be the, the, you know, a lot of teams have done this in the past. They would have, they would take a game. I mean, I'll be honest. They would take a game that, um, that was on a, like a Sunday, maybe Sunday afternoon against a team that wasn't that great where they had a lot of tickets. And they'd say, Hey, Christian group, if you're, if you will, uh, people of the faith community, if you buy a bunch of these tickets then we'll recognize you on the scoreboard, and after the game, we'll let you bring in a musician and a speaker and have a little concert, and maybe one of our players will come out and say hi. That's been going on forever. Apparently, the Dodgers discontinued Faith and Family Day or Faith and Family Night many years ago. So now, as a way of trying to keep the Catholic Voting League happy and the Archdiocese of Los Angeles happy, the Dodgers have capitulated to try to please both crowds. And so Pride Night, with the recognition for the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, will happen in June, and Faith and Family Night, starring Clayton Kershaw, will happen in July. I don't—I mean, salt water, fresh water, I I don't see how you can do both. But ours is not to reason why, sometimes. (laughs) We'll find out this side of eternity. By the way, it was interesting. It was a really great piece that was posted by— my friend John Strakey, who was a writer for the uh, with the Herald Examiner and the Orange County Register for many years, he's retired to Colorado now. Uh, John uh, posted something from Paul Batura, a focus on the family, that was a piece about Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson and how they agreed that they were going to handle the press when their decision to integrate Major League Baseball was wildly unpopular with a lot of racist whites. And it's a fascinating article. We'll put it up at thebottomlineshow.com. But it got me thinking about John and Marlene, his wife, and their daughter, Hannah. Uh, many Bottom Line listeners know that we met the Streggies several years ago. And Hannah Streggy was the first person to be born after being a frozen embryo that was adopted by her parents. There were no frozen embryo adoption laws at that time. John and Marlene had to uh, enact a, 
uh, engagement with a, an attorney that helped them to adopt the embryo that was then planted into Marlene's womb. And she basically carried her own foster child, and then they adopted her. Hannah, by the way, is about to finish her master's degree in social work at Baylor University. She's a really remarkable young lady. Uh, John wrote a book about their experience called A Snowflake Named Hannah. And we have a copy of that book we're going to give away today uh, at 800-227-5278. I want to revisit my conversation with the Streggies from the first time I met them. It was at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention about three years ago. So on the other side of this break, you're going to hear my dialogue with John and Marlene and Hannah Streggy about frozen embryos, embryo adoption, and the sanctity of human life and the value of the soul. It's all coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Special edition of The Bottom Line Show today. Roger Marsh here once again, uh, broadcasting live from the uh, National Religious Broadcasters Convention, joined by three very, very special people. The Strage family are with me here today. We have John, we have Hannah, and we have Marlene. Hannah and Marlene are holding microphones, so John's just going to wave. Welcome to The Bottom Line Show. <laughs> Thank you for, having, for us. having us. This is very, very exciting for me on a couple levels, kind of geeking out over our mutual love of the city of Whittier, which <laughs> is kind of fun, um, and our love of sports, and John being someone I've read for many, many years uh, when he was writing for the Orange County Re Was it the Santa Ana Register then, John? Or was Orange County Register all the way through? Um, and now works for uh, Golf Digest and is getting ready to uh, play golf permanently on a regular basis. The reason the Strage family are so important is because of Hannah and her birth and the way it came about. Uh, Hannah has a very, very unique distinction. Hannah, how do you like to describe yourself to people when they ask you what your story is all about? I like to say that I'm the first adopted frozen embryo in the world, and that pretty much sums it up. From <laughs> You just get right to the heart of the matter here. That, now, it's funny because I'm, I'm going to say something that some of our listeners might say is, well, that's weird because I'm looking at the picture here, and, and she looks like a normal, healthy woman. Well, yeah, why wouldn't she? Because that, But Marlene, this is such an interesting story because we hear about in vitro fertilization and frozen embryos and things like that. But that wasn't very common when you guys were looking in Hannah's world. Talk about, talk about the process first. What, how does the frozen embryo thing work? And then what happened in your story? So uh, uh, we had, John and I had been through infertility treatments in 1997. And the uh, doctors said that uh, I was no longer producing eggs, which mm. was premature ovarian failure. And that our options were that we could use donor eggs with my husband's sperm, which would mean creating a life outside the marriage bond. And we were not comfortable with that. But I asked the physician at that time, do you have any frozen embryos that we could adopt? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, yeah, I've got lots of those, but nobody ever asked me that question. Interesting. So uh, we wanted to know what God thought about that. So we contacted um, some of our trusted uh, pastor friends, Lutheran pastor friends. Where were you in church? Uh, another reason I love you is your Lutheran background. I'm ordained yes. in the LCMC. So Okay. Yeah. So we're Lutheran Missouri Synod. Okay. So Great. we contacted uh, Dr. Charles Mansky, who was the founding president of Concordia University in Irvine. You know him well. And, I knew him well. Yes, <laughs> and um, some other um, uh, Lutheran pastors, as well as uh, Dr. James Dobson at mm -hmm. then Focus on the Family. Right. Um, and he actually called us back the next week, um, and he had to get counsel because he had never been asked this question. What wow. would God think about adopting frozen embryos? Mm -hmm. But all those people confirmed what John and I knew and that these were human lives, and if the original family was not going to go back for them, then they needed to be adopted. Now, these all come about, these frozen embryos, because people go through IVF, which is in vitro fertilization. Mm -hmm. The doctor creates 
embryos, which is when the sperm and the egg join together, creates new life as an embryo. And then he will transfer a few of those embryos back to the woman, but then the remaining ones, they freeze for future transfers. Well, that family might complete their family and find themselves that sure. they can't parent any more children. Mm-hmm. So they have these frozen embryos that just remain out there wow. in, in limbo. Wow. And so um, those are the children that we wanted to adopt. So we weren't creating children. We mm-hmm. were just adopting children. I love that terminology. And I'm talking with Marlene Strage, Hannah Strage, John Strage today here on The Bottom Line about their new book, which is called It's Hannah's Journey. It's Hannah's Story. It's called A Snowflake Named Hannah, Ethics, Faith, and the First Adoption of a Frozen Embryo. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Hannah, when you talk to people, do you tell them you're adopted? Or how do you describe it? Because basically, mom and dad adopted you, but you also grew in your mother's womb. Yeah, it definitely depends on who I'm talking to uh-huh. and how I'm feeling during the day. Sure. Um, I don't usually just come out and tell people unless I'm sharing about my story in situations like this, but usually I'll build a relationship with that person first and I'll say how I'm adopted and then they'll ask more about more common adoption questions like, oh, do you know your biological family? Mm-hmm. Do you know who your real parents are? Yeah. Which is a question I get a lot. And how I talk. Do you, how I, do you feel about that? I mean, you're talking about that in the book, but how do you, for our audience, how do you feel about that when someone says, what about your real parents? Um, I know a lot of the questions are just coming out of just curiosity. Sure, they don't know. um, And they don't mean to be ignorant about it, but I like to use that as a way to educate people on adoption terminology and how it all works and how John and Marlene are my parents and... Mm -hmm. um, They're mom and dad. Yeah, they're mom and dad. And biology really doesn't play a factor here when Mm. it comes to adoption. Marlene, what was it like for you as a mom knowing that you were... This is... New territory. I mean, I, I love the fact you're pioneers. I mean, no one had ever done this before. And you had this idea. Right. And, and I'm sure there were all sorts of barriers, right. not from people trying to keep you from doing it, but just literally the question, like Dr. Dobson said, what do I do? I mean, right. we've never had this before. Right. What was it like for you? Well, we had to get an attorney to do this because we didn't know how to do this legally. And the legal status of these human embryos is property and not people. So our attorney with Nightlight Christian Adoptions was a good friend of ours, Ron Stoddart, and he used had to use a contract like you're buying a house, but used he used adoption terminology. Okay. And they also followed best practices for adoption. So that meant that John and I completed a home study. So we completed all the requirements for the state of California for adoption, even though legally we didn't have to because legally they're considered property. Mm. But we know that they're children. Sure. And this is in the best interest of the child to do it and to put the child first. So we did all of that. And then we were matched uh, through Nightlight uh, with a family that had frozen embryos. And it's just like a birth mom um, who chooses the family that she wants. So the genetic family or the placing family chose John and me to be the parents. And then we chose them. Once the paperwork was signed, again, like you're buying property, you have three days to change your mind. Once that date had passed, those were legally our children. Mm -hmm. Then those children were Federal Express to our clinic in Pasadena. And then my body was then prepared to receive them. Mm -hmm. So they had to time the timing, the freezing, the thawing of the embryos with my body, with my cycle, Mm -hmm. to get that exact moment that's most optimum. So Hannah was actually transferred on Good Friday. Oh, and I love it. And tra- uh, she, excuse me, she was thawed on Good Friday and transferred the day before Easter. Oh my goodness, how wonderful! So it was, it was just a wonderful experience. And then when I went for the first ultrasound, because I had three embryos transferred, um, to find out how many I was pregnant with, 
uh, the doctor, his mouth just dropped open when he looked at the ultrasound, and I thought there was something wrong. But he said it was a textbook implantation. He oh, said wow. all the places the embryo could have planted, this was uh-huh. the most optimum. I said, well, God doesn't do second best. <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, that's Marlene Strage you're listening to on the bottom line, along with your daughter Hannah, husband John. The Strages are the first family to experience what we call uh, the snowflake procedure, I guess. I mean, in terms of... Uh, snowflake embryo adoption. Snowflake embryo adoption. Her, the book is called A Snowflake Named Hannah. Ethics, faith, and the first adoption of a frozen embryo. We have a link for the bottom line sh- at the bottom line show for this book. I did want to mention too how the name came to be. We had took taken our attorney to go see a play in San Diego, uh-huh. and the actress said, "In the intricate design of each flake of snow, we find the Creator reflecting the individual human heart." Mm. And she touched a little blonde-haired girl on the cheek as she said that, and that just captured our hearts. And we took our attorney with and his wife. And he turned to us at intermission. He said, we now have the name of our new program. Wow. Because snowflakes are frozen, unique, and never again to be recreated, just like the frozen embryos. Perfect. It's a perfect, it's a perfect illustration of how this whole process can work so beautifully in God's economy. And I, I, I think it's wonderful that he chose you guys. I mean, I'm, I'm having Luke chapter one moments, you know, <laughs> thinking, here's the angel Gabriel saying, guess what, Marlene? You, this is going to happen. And guess what, John? You know, is it that, I mean, on that level for you? It definitely is. In fact, we got so many confirmations along the way that God was telling us, this is what I want you to do. Mm -hmm. He was opening so many doors and so many things that happened that can only be explained by God intervening. Um, And John mentions these in the book along the way. And so I hope as people read that, they will just, they will see how God fingerprints is all over this. The book, A Snowflake Named Hannah, is up at thebottomlineshow.com, and Hannah, the snowflake, is sitting right here. I mean, I, I'm smiling only to myself because of what's happened in modern culture with the terminology of the snowflake generation and how that they're going to melt when somebody challenges an idea. But you put a whole new spin on this, you know, in terms of you being, uh, you know, that kind of snowflake person. I mean, <laughs> but literally sitting here right now. Um, as you talk to people who are looking at the sanctity of human life, and looking at the issue of, say, abortion versus adoption and things like that, you have such a unique perspective, and you're a young woman, you know, a very pro, part of the pro-life generation. What does it strike you as when you see women saying, well, we've got to talk about reproductive justice and reproductive rights and things like that, and you're saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, do you, do you want to know my story? What's it like for you to have those conversations? It's really important because I know this is what God's called me to do and giving me this unique story and being able to be a voice for the voiceless. And so we are talking about women's issues just from a different perspective. We're talking about infertility and not being able to carry and now being able to carry your own adopted child. And that is unheard of in a woman's dream, Mm -hmm. um, especially going into infertility issues. Yes. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, more of this conversation, I want to get John on mic too, because dad has a a part to play in all this as well. A snowflake named Hannah, ethics, faith, and the first adoption of a frozen embryo. The link is up at thebottomlineshow.com. More of this conversation in just a moment as the bottom line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost 1.7 trillion invested in investment grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years? 
After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. John Marlene and Hannah Strage, my guests today here on this edition of the program, and we're revisiting my conversation with them from a couple of years ago about Hannah's adoption journey. She was the first frozen embryo in American history to ever be adopted into a family. Uh, she was then you know, implanted into her mother's womb, and Marlene gave birth to her adoptive daughter. <laughs> and uh, A Snowflake Called Hannah is the uh, the book that d details their journey. We're giving away a copy today here on Super Tuesday because the pro-life issue, abortion is saving democracy, whatever, is going to be huge on the campaign trail in 2024. And if you've not read the Strage story about the value of the human soul and the sanctity of human life, you will be blessed by the book of Snowflake named Hannah. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Again, we have one copy of the book by John Strege about his daughter, Hannah, called A Snowflake Named Hannah. It's an amazing story of the first person to ever be conceived as a frozen embryo and then adopted by a family who then had the frozen embryo impl implanted in a mom's womb, and mom became natural birth mother and also adoptive mother and foster mother all in one. It's a really remarkable story. 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. More of my conversation with the Straggy family coming up next as the bottom line continues. A Snowflake Named Hannah, brand new book by John Strage. It's the story of his daughter Hannah and his wife Marlene and their whole family's experience of literally being the first family to adopt a frozen embryo. And when you adopt a frozen embryo, that means that you are giving birth. I mean, you're taking it all the way through. The book is up at thebottomlineshow.com. John, the first half of the conversation was dominated by the women. So let's get Dad's perspective on here now, too. Uh, what was it like for you? When, was this a mutual decision? Was this you know, Marlene? Did she have to drag you along kicking and screaming? How did this work? Uh, she did not have to drag me along. But uh, we really hadn't discussed it much until we got the diagnosis of premature ovarian failure for sure. Marlene. Mm -hmm. And she ought, she was in tears, and I don't blame her. Uh, you know, we'd gone through a lot, and she raised the question, can we adopt frozen embryos? And so that sort of started it, as she explained. And as time went on, you know, we just kind of let it play out. It's, you know, walk by faith, you know, not by sight. Yes. We didn't yes. know where it was going. Mm -hmm. um, prayed about it, and, uh, you know, just everything seemed to fall into place. So many. This is why I think it's a God thing. So many things had to happen for this to occur. Sure. And I'm looking back in hindsight, God placed so many people in our lives. I mean, 25 years earlier, including our adoption attorney, who we'd actually lost touch with. He wasn't an adoption attorney when we uh, really knew him. Hmm. Um, but having him in his life, he could have said no when we asked him, and yeah. that would have been yeah. the end of it. Right. Because he, he could have said his name was Ron Stoddard. He could have said. 
you know, I've got too many things on my plate. I'm going to Russia to get kids adopted. I don't have time to do it. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't have any place else to turn. I think God placed Ron in our lives 25 years earlier for this purpose. I think that's wonderful. And I hope to reflect, I hope that's reflected in the book. That, yeah. That's, I tried to show that this was God's plan, not our plan. Mm. That's John Strage, the author of the book about Hannah, his daughter, and his wife, Marlene. Uh, a snowflake named Hannah is up at thebottomlineshow.com. Uh, Marlene, as you were going through these different uh, stages and these different seasons and blazing new trails, uh, what did you know about frozen embryos other than they were available? Did you know anything about the science? I did not know anything about them. How many them? there were? No, no, I had no idea. In fact, when we were considering IVF and the doctors were talking about freezing embryos, that they would pull as many eggs and make embryos and that they would freeze the remaining ones. Well, they never told us that only 50% survive a thaw. Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's yeah. huge, you yeah. know. And so I learned that going through this process of adopting embryos, you know, the scientific part of that. So it's a huge thing for a, a human being to go through a freeze and a thaw. Mm -hmm. um, and so that Hannah's even sitting here today. I mean, we adopted 20 embryos and she's the only one wow. that survived that whole process, you mm -hmm. know. Um, so they're, they're miracle babies. Sure. And to date, Nightlight has had seven, over 700 babies born through wow. embryo adoption, through the Snowflakes program. In fact, the 700th baby was born on Hannah's birthday, December 31st oh my of goodness. 2019. Wow. So we reached an even 700 right then. And there's been other organizations have, that have been doing mm -hmm. embryo adoption, um, maybe not necessarily like Nightlight, mm -hmm. but I highly recommend Nightlight Christian Adoptions. I believe they're the only adoption agency. They've been in business for 60 years, and I kind of think they know what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and they're willing to take a chance on something like this. Yes. They're willing to, to say, okay, this is an option. Because I think of the number of women who are struggling with, you know, the, the issue of you want to be a parent. You, your body says no, you know, that for whatever reason. Right. But you still can go through this whole process. So it's adoption and right. birth. And I remember being pregnant with Hannah and, you know, processing all of this. And I came to this realization. I'm like, it's not about me. It's about, I'm saving a life. Yes, yes. And that just changed everything. It wasn't about me. Um, that was just the most, that was the, the greatest moment, I think, was when that, when I discovered that it's about Hannah. It's mm -hmm. not about me at all. Mm -hmm. And then we also discovered that we're not in love with our egg and our sperm. It does right. not matter <laughs> that we're not her, you know, yeah. it doesn't matter that we don't share biology with her. Mm -hmm. No. No, you, she's you, our daughter, and it's such a unique <laughs> relationship. John, you, you've got some fun, fond memories, I'm sure, of having this little one. Oh, it's uh, been fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Except for those teen years. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. <laughs> that doesn't change. It doesn't matter how you get into the family. The teen years are always tough. Yeah, but she's she's so well spoken about the subject and mm -hmm. passionate about it, and we're very proud of her. Hannah, take the mic from your dad for, or from your mom. It doesn't matter. Take them from both. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> She'll have both of them here. When you are, uh, you, you realize, I mean, you're a standard bearer, right? I mean, you're, you're the first one, you know, to go through this process and, and, and do so. And others have done it, 700 with the one agency, but I, there are probably 100,000 plus other opportunities for this to happen. Um, what would you say to a parent who is listening to our conversation right now and they're saying, gosh, we've, we've been struggling. We've had the IVS treatments are not working. We've thought about adopting somewhere else. Hadn't really even considered doing what your parents did. What, what would you make your best sales pitch for why this is such a good way to go? Yeah, um, I think what my mom said is 
very true. We're not in love with our biology and that should not be stopping us from adopting and saving lives. And whether you're adopting internationally or domestically or snowflakes, like adopting is saving a life Mm -hmm. and giving a child a chance at life. So no matter what you're doing, you're doing it for the common good and for some child that's really in need of a home. Mm -hmm. I wonder what, I mean, I've often wondered what God, you know, thinks of the way we handle our bodies and the way we handle our sexuality and the way we do these things. You said something earlier, Marlene. I want to circle back around to it. I, I want to paraphrase, but I don't want to. I don't want to misquote you. Something about what you your take on what God would think about and what God does think about the whole process. Talk, circle back around and, and, well, and talk. Well, so um, you know, going through all these this infertility, you're just thrown these options and treatments all the time, and mm-hmm. it just keeps getting more and more high tech as you go through this. Yeah. And every seems like every week or every couple of weeks, you have to face a new ethical question. Sure. You know, do we do ICSI? You know, do we do, you know, all these terms, all these. And um, so, you know, I, I wanted to do embryo adoption, but first and foremost, I wanted to know what does God think about this? Because sure. I have to stand before God someday and give an account of my life. My Amen. infertility doctor is not going to be standing there with me explaining to God why we did what we did. Mm. So that's why it was very, very important to me first that we could try to discern what God would think about this. And we did it the best way we could. We went to trusted pastors who mm-hmm. know the Bible well. Dr. Dobson, who's a, a family and child psychologist who knows the Bible well, yes. you know, to say, is there anything that would preclude us from doing this scripturally? Mm-hmm. And we just couldn't find anything that would um, because these are children. Yes. Yes, they are. Precious children. In Jeremiah 1, 5. Before you were in the womb, I knew you. And before before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. And before you're in the womb, which is the uterus, you're in the fallopian tubes or the Petri dish. Mm -hmm. God knows you at that moment of fertilization. Right. At one cell. So he he was not surprised at all that you were coming to him and asking, is it okay if we do this? Yeah, he he was And that's been our family Bible verse. Yeah. Wow. It just just carried us through. How exciting. This, uh, I... Pardon me for being a little dumbstruck here, but I'm just really enjoying this moment. I mean, the, the history of it, the eternity of it, the fact that uh, we, we often talk so much about the sanctity of human life and the dignity of human life on this program, but realizing that uh, what you were led to do really was God-ordained, I believe. I mean, I, I, I can't That's how we of, see it, too. I can't, I can't think of any other way to describe it. And, uh, and Hannah, you're a miracle, and, uh, and I'm just honored to have you here. Really well, thank just, you. Thank you I'm for having I'm just moved by us. this. I'm, I should probably mention that we have a book here to talk about, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just enjoying this conversation. The book is called A Snowflake Named Hannah, Ethics, Faith, and the First Adoption of a Frozen Embryo. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, written by John Strakey, uh, award-winning journalist. Even if you aren't, I just gave you an award. Uh, does that sound good? Okay. And his wife, Marlene, in here. And Hannah, did you mention why, why you picked Hannah as the name? Uh, well, it... it Loosely translated means gift from God. Mm, and I that's why it. we chose that name. Yes, when you sh- she certainly is. And a gift to all of us. And, and we're very grateful. Get a copy of this book. You will be, uh, you'll be blessed by it. And uh, also to go onto the Family Talk site, too, and find their interview that they did with Dr. Dobson. Because uh, the emotion that's there, too, knowing that uh, he played such a huge role in this and continues to play a role in Hannah's mm-hmm. life. And not a bad choice for a godfather. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. <laughs> John, Marlene, Hannah Strage, thank you so much for being with me today here on The Bottom Line. Thank you. Thank you for having us. 
And that concludes my conversation, the first meeting I had with John, Marlene, and Hannah Stregge. And the book called The Snowflake Named Hannah is up at thebottomlineshow.com. We have one copy of this book to give away at 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800 the number to get you through to the bottom line. Talking about the sanctity of human life and how important this issue will be on the campaign trail. And uh, especially as a... <laughs> The thread we're weaving here, I started talking about the Dodgers capitulating to the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, and John Stregge uh, posted an article that was written by his friend Paul Batura, focused on the family, about how the Dodgers used to have moral courage and character. And it got me thinking about the election in 2024 and how abortion and adoption are wedge issues in the culture. It seems like we are at a culture right now of chaos. And a lot of Christian leaders would kind of agree with me, I'm sure. As a matter of fact, 47% of them say that chaos is pervasive in their organization. So the question is, how do we beat chaos and use biblical values in the workplace? Uh, Dr. Gary Harpst has written a fascinating book about this, explaining that God literally created chaos and then created order out of it, and we can do the same thing in our churches, in our businesses, in our communities. I'm going to talk with Dr. Harps about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. Don't believe your insurance company is looking out for you. They're not. They want you to call them after you're in an accident, but you shouldn't handle that alone. That's where Stephanie Cover of Cover Law shines. With 20 years of insurance industry experience, she knows all the angles and will fight for your rights. Insurance companies pretend to be your partner, but in reality, their primary goal is to pay you as little as possible. When you work with Cover Law, Stephanie becomes your negotiator, and the insurance companies must talk to her, not you. You need to rest and heal. Stephanie is different from other attorneys. She's fully invested in your legal, medical, financial, emotional, and spiritual needs. After an accident, you don't want to deal with insurance adjusters who want to minimize your payout. So don't wait. Contact Cape Wright's personal injury attorney today at capewrightradio.com slash coverlaw. You won't pay a dime to talk to someone who truly cares about your healing. Well, today on The Bottom Line, we're going to get into a conversation that I think is really important and growing more important in the body of Christ as it pertains to the way we live and the way we live by faith. A lot of people have the impression that uh, life is kind of happenstance and uh, it just kind of, it's what happens to you during the course of the day. Other people say, wait a minute, God seems to be a God of order and not of chaos. So why is it that it seems like churches and Christian organizations especially are really struggling with the challenge of keeping things together, well, enter Gary Harpst into the picture, a uh, guy who's a, a leadership expert and an organizational leadership expert at that, has written a new book called Built to Beat Chaos, Biblical Wils Wisdom for Leading Yourself and Leading Others. And we have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Gary Harpst, welcome to The Bottom Line Show. Hey, thank you, Roger. Pleasure to it, be here. Well, it's good to have you along here, too. I should point out here that before we go any further, uh, my daughter just graduated from the University of Southern California, and Gary spent many years working for The Ohio State University. So if we can have a conversation that's civil and constructive and this, that, and the other thing, even though uh, we've got some school background differences here, I think anybody can. Is that a fair thing to say, Gary? I think that's fair. I go clear <laughs> back to Woody Hayes. So Oh, no. Oh, no. And the White Sox. And oh, my goodness. Well, uh, my, my dad went to SC when uh, Dr. Dobson was there and when John McKay was coaching. So that's right around the time that I was, I was picking 
picking up on it. So we have a storied history. And uh, I, see, isn't it good to know that brothers can work together and live together? Man, yeah. Some things it's, are bigger than football. That's for sure. That's for sure, though. You wouldn't know it on Saturday afternoons. That's for sure in the <laughs> no. college world. Let's talk about this. You, you have a statistic where you say that nearly half of people who are in leadership roles right now say that when it comes to describing their organizations, the word they would use is chaotic. Uh, talk about that. Yes, it's true. I, a little story. I was working with a, a, a group of uh, care hospital caregivers in uh, about two years ago, right in the middle of COVID. And w the purpose of the meeting was to have a quarterly uh, prioritization session. And th this was in uh, in Chicago, and they were just absolutely overwhelmed with uh, COVID patients, etc. And I we, we had this uh, really powerful exercise where we ask people to brainstorm and decide what their biggest priorities are for the next 90 days. And unbelievably, this is uh, confidential, so they don't know what each other's voting on. Mm -hmm. And it came out, everybody came out with the number one priority was to have time to think. Mm. Mm. And uh, so it, it chaos, uh, once that meeting caused, it just sort of ran through me, the, the depth of chaos that people are facing. And once I started paying attention, I almost hear it daily. Somebody uses that word mm -hmm. daily, and it could be at church, could be at a baseball game, watching my kids, and somebody will talk about something. It's, it's everywhere. Yeah. So. It, well, it certainly is. And I think one of the things that we can start with by helping uh, leaders, we're talking to pastors who might be facing this, or maybe people in the educational system, or just parents, you know, who are looking at the chaos that seems to be uh, the, defining their home life these days. And there's something about the chaotic environment that kind of le leads us to believe that maybe God isn't around or maybe we're not following all that much. But at the same time, uh, Gary, we're living in a time where it seems like the people who are getting a lot of praise in the business world or in the pastoral world are, and I'm going to use the term that they use, are disruptors. You know, they're the ones who say, okay, well, the culture used to do it like this, but we're way over here doing something different. Kind of help us understand that chaos isn't all bad necessarily, but there is a refining part of chaos that if we don't really embrace it, we're going to get run over by this. Well, that that is exactly the insight that came to me as I worked on uh, this the book I was working on. And that, by the way, I I wasn't aspiring to work 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 on a book, and but I through a series of events, God made it clear He wanted wanted me to work on this book. And love it. And uh, the the word chaos was part of the theme, and I studied Genesis one. And it really spoke to what the issue you you pointed out. If you really study Genesis one uh, carefully, and you ask someone what's the first thing God created, and they'll say, "Oh, I think it was light or something like that." But if you read it, really, He created chaos first. Mm -hmm. it, the very first sentence says, "In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and it was void and without form." <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Later on in the chapter. Uh, he says, well, he then proceeds to bring order out of that chaos. And then later on in the chapter, it says that we're created in his image. So that there was a very clear, I think, message there that uh, being created in his image, he was modeling for us something that we're supposed to do, which is to take chaos and bring order out of it. So he he does it himself. And then he says, you're like me. And so chaos really is not an evil or um, a bad thing. Chaos is simply raw materials that have not been applied to a purpose. Mm. So, you know, if you have a stack of two before sitting out in the yard, uh, they mean nothing. But if you have a blueprint for the house, then you know where to put all those two before. Yeah. So uh, the whole universe was created by God as a, as a, 
laboratory for us as a domain for us to have dominion, you know, that's the phrase used that we're supposed to learn to overcome and bring order out of this chaos. And, and the, what I kind of discovered as I worked in the book is that's really how we find joy. Mm. We find joy when we're bringing order out of chaos. And I, I use the example Thanksgiving dinner, my grandmother, uh, who's passed on now, she was bringing order out of chaos. She was creating some chaos mm -hmm. in her kitchen, but she was taking ingredients from all over the place and creating this feast and bringing an order to it, a purpose to all those ingredients. Yeah. And boy, was she in the middle of her domain. Don't get in her way. She loved it. <laughs> Gary Harps is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. We're talking about his powerful new book. It's designed for leaders, but when you get right down to it, uh, there's a, there are applications here that all of us in the body of Christ can take away from his research. The book is called Built to Beat Chaos, Biblical Wisdom for Leading Yourself and Leading Others. And we have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Uh, that that uh, concept of purpose, there are so many young people in the world today, Gary, that are are saying, you know, what's my purpose? What's my place? Rick Warren wrote a book for pastors about a purpose-driven church. And when they turn the focus on individuals, all of a sudden it sold 20 million copies. People are really desperate for purpose. And sometimes we might get the impression that that we might overemphasize that. But I know one of the things you write about in your book, Built to Beat Chaos, is you can't overemphasize discovering what your purpose is, either individually or part of a corporate setting. Talk about that. Yes, the purpose is really the, the opposite of chaos. They're kind of a, a spectrum. And the, the very first step of bringing order out of chaos is understanding, well, what is it I want to do? I think that where people fall into a trap and, and say, I need to find, quote, my purpose, it's not that simple. Uh, you know, there are multiple purposes in life. I, I have maybe my individual, the way I'm wired and trying to figure out what satisfies me, but then I get married and I have a, a bigger purpose that is a joint purpose with right. that. And so uh, I go to work and my boss is three layers deep in the organization and I need to align with my boss's purpose and he needs to align with the purpose above him. We live in a country and we have to decide how we fit in with the laws of the country. And so this, this um, skill and God, the Bible speaks so much to this, this skill of sorting out what is God's purpose? What is my purpose within that purpose? What is the purpose of my family? He gives us insight on all these things. And unless you align them, unless you get them all lined up in the same direction, you don't in, have the joy that he intended when he created it. You know, you mentioned uh, th how this applies to marriage. And I, my, bottom line, listeners are probably tired of hear me, hearing me talk about my wife, Lisa, and how much I love her. We're a blended family situation after losing our previous spouses. And and that was a big revelation for me is that Lisa's a program manager. She's very goal-oriented. Everything, you know, as far as, you know, what she, her hopes and dreams are for the family make perfect sense. And for me, oftentimes I've got those goals and dreams, but I was so solo for quite a while. And I learned how to be, you know, single guy, you know, yeah, <laughs> kind yeah. of an introvert. And so integrating back now in our fourth year of marriage, it's been a real struggle for me. And I don't mean a struggle in a bad way, but I've really had to work at integrating some of the things you're talking about. And it sounds like that, uh, what we're doing is kind of what you're telling people, whether it's leadership or family or marriage or whatever, that's the kind of process that has to take place. Yeah, it is. And I, I can relate to you. I didn't get married till I was 35. So I definitely <laughs> had to learn how to, uh, do things for myself and, sure. uh, one thing I I did not understand this till I was digging into writing the book, and um, 
was the idea that you know God reveals Himself through creation. That's that's uh, biblical, and so He reveals Himself through His Word and through creation. So I really love science. I'm I'm really mm -hmm. into what it is science tells us because good science will reveal the nature and character of God. And uh, what one interesting thing to your point about your relationship with your wife is, you know, when we build a, you know, I got this mouse here for my uh, computer, it's made up of a lot of atoms and all those little atoms uh, fit together really well and predictably because of the electrostatic energy in them. So we have these laws of physics that govern everything we build and we can rely on them. And yet God said in Genesis, if you want to have dominion over the earth, you've got to multiply and work with other people. And people do not obey the laws of physics. Wow. That, that's, a, that's a very, very telling statement from Gary Harpst today here on The Bottom Line. And we're just scratching the surface on his brand new book, but we're going to need to take a break here quickly, and we'll come right back into this conversation. The book is called Built to Beat Chaos, Biblical Wisdom for Leading Yourself and Others by Gary Harpst. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. More of this conversation in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. One of the greatest gifts that we can give to an expectant mother is the gift of the first picture she'll ever have of her son or daughter in the womb. That comes through an ultrasound, and our friends at Preborn have an opportunity for us to make more of these ultrasounds a reality. Every time you give a donation of $28 to Preborn, that means one more ultrasound can take place. But how about giving enough money for an ultrasound machine? The cost is $15,000. It's a sizable investment. But every ultrasound machine can do 250 ultrasounds per year and lasts at least 10 years. Now take that cost $15,000 and divide that by 2,500. Okay, now you begin to see how the cost per ultrasound goes down even more once we have more ultrasound machines to donate into preborn clinics. Make a donation right now to preborn. It's completely tax deductible, and every penny, every dollar you donate right now is going to the purchase of an ultrasound machine. 833-850-BABY is the number to call, 833-850-2229, or go to kbrightradio.com. That's K-B-R-I-T-E radio.com. Click on the banner for Preborn and make your best donation right now. $25, $50, $100, it all counts towards saving babies' lives. kbrightradio.com. Hit the Preborn banner right now. Welcome back to this Super Tuesday edition of The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. If it feels like the world has gotten way too chaotic, uh, guess what? There is a way you can beat it, but it requires biblical values. And Dr. Gary Harps is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. To talk about this, he wrote, wrote about it in a brand new book called Built to Beat Chaos, Biblical Wisdom for Leading Yourself and Others. And there's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. We do have a copy of the book that we're giving away today, 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Again, we've got a copy of this outstanding book by Dr. Gary Harpst, Biblical Wisdom to Help You Beat the Chaos That's Happening in the World Today. Think about this. When you read the Genesis account in Genesis 1, you see that God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and you get the idea that the Holy Spirit is hovering over this formlessness and in this void. It's the same word that's used in Luke's gospel to describe the Holy Spirit hovering over Mary. People wonder, well, why is it that Mary, when confronted by the angel Gabriel and told that she was going to become a mother carrying Jesus, um, that why that would be... Uh, you know, such a some people say, "Well, way to go, Mary. Good for you. You know, you 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 showed great courage and 
you you made a difficult decision to forego your your own life to at the sacrifice of God. Well, basically, I'll say this as kindly as I can. Mary really didn't have a choice because God chose her, and then the Holy Spirit was hovering over her the same way God was hovering over the formlessness and void of the earth. She was her response was okay, my Lord and my God, let's do this. The idea that we can build, beat, beat chaos in this world comes from the fact that God is a God of order and not of chaos, but God created chaos first and then brought order to it. The more we realize and recognize that that's the way God operates, the easier it is for us to look at our lives and say, wait a minute. I mean, like for me, I'll give you an example. Um, in my personal life, I love the idea of the ocean, <laughs> <laughs> like I put that, I see people surfing and body surfing and paddleboarding and stuff, and I just love the idea of the ocean. However, when I swim, I like to swim in a lap pool that has the lanes marked out and those little floaty things on the side to keep me in structure because I need that. I don't do well when I'm surfing. I don't do well when I'm bodyboarding or you know boogie boarding or whatever because I need that structure, and yet. How many times does God talk about our spiritual life in nautical terms? For him to say, look, I created the wind and the waves. I created the sea. It doesn't matter how rough this is going to get. I'm a God of order who can bring order out of what seems like chaos to you. And that's why this is such an important book and a great topic, too. Dr. Gary Harpst, Built to Beat Chaos, Biblical Wisdom for Leading Yourself and Others, is up at thebottomlineshow.com. 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. KCBC audience, you've got Rabbi Schneider up next for you. For those who remain on the network, we'll continue my conversation with Gary Harpst on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Gary Harpst is my guest today here on the bottom line. His brand new book is a must read, Built to Beat Chaos, Biblical Wisdom for Leading Yourself and Others. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Gary, you have such a varied background and I didn't brag on you enough earlier. I just teased you about the Ohio State University, but bachelor's and master's degree in computer science, uh, working for Marathon Oil, founder, uh, co-founder rather, CEO of Solomon Software, uh, TLB Incorporated. I mean, you you have worked with companies, you've started companies in business, and you've seen technologies change too. We were talking about disruptions earlier. And I'm sure that the early days of the computer science world and the software world, you know, look nothing like it does right now. And yet, you know what it's like to try to establish something tangible in a really fluid market, things of that nature. That's kind of hitting everybody now, isn't it? I mean, from churches to education to the business world, it seems like what you were called to be involved in and the the streams you were swimming in 40 years ago, that's kind of the, the norm now rather than the exception, isn't it? I think that's probably the primary characteristic in my lifetime is the acceleration of change. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is really astounding. And, uh, you know, my parents' generation went from horse and buggy, literally, to man on the moon. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing this incredible um, acceleration just in the last few years. I, I commented to a friend recently, my children, actually, uh, my kids, and they're not kids anymore, but... Uh, uh, three trends that any one of these things, uh, I was ahead, these were headlines, and any one of them would have been a once in a century kind of thing. One was quantum, the progress in quantum computing, mm-hmm. and quantum computing is the slowest quantum computer is 300 million times faster than our current computers. Mm. Artificial intelligence, you know, chat GPT 
I mean, we've been talking about artificial intelligence for decades, but all of a sudden, in what six months, ChatGPT has just taken the world by 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 storm. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, uh, and then the third one is uh, fusion energy. And if we crack the code on fusion energy, we kind of have a whole different geopolitical world in terms of infinite amounts of energy. Mm-hmm. Any one of those would be a once in a hundred year kind of <laughs> thing. And, and in, in three weeks time, I saw headlines on all three of these. Incredible. Incredible. Well, and this is something where I think a lot of people get overwhelmed. They see these types of things happening. If they have the discernment to understand the gravity of what they're dealing with, then it could be overwhelming. And yet what you have a section in the book built to be chaos on what effective leaders should do. And you start right off by saying, build a habit reinforcing system. If everything is changing so quickly, Gary Harps, what kind of habits are you talking about? Well, that's the way you deal with change is really basic things. So God established the first habit, which was the Sabbath. You know, it's really interesting. Jesus made the comment, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Mm, Amen. And, uh, you know, basically the word Sabbath means to rest, to cease. And so in organizations, one of the things we prescribe is what is your weekly cycle? When do you step back and think about your own priorities in your business? Stephen Covey popularized the the idea of uh, big rocks and when do you stop and think and got in the bible that's your your sabbath is the time to reflect and step away so that's an example there are other cycles that are also uh biblical quarterly which fit the seasons and and years which fit the cycle of the the sun so uh those tend to be the um kinds of habits priority setting is a huge deal that mm-hmm. that's the only way you make Uh, order out of chaos when things are changing is determine your priorities. Yeah. And when you talk about those priorities, oftentimes people are so driven on the end result that they don't think about how this is working and through the organization. You talk about teamwork and and get everybody in the thought of innovating rather than just kind of muling, if you will. Talk about why that innovation is so important. Well, this comes back to... um, you know, if you really read Genesis carefully, every single person is is a leader. And what I mean by that is I define leadership as deciding where you want to go and then taking the steps to make it happen. <laughs> and that's a form of dominion. It's a form of overcoming, overpowering, whether it's cooking a meal. And so if you can, as a leader of a group of people, can tap the leadership capabilities of everyone in the group, you actually unleash an incredible amount of synergy that God put in all those people. And I have, I have a story that, that is uh, illustrates this. I was talking to a group of service CEOs in a service business and one, and I asked, why don't you train all your frontline leaders to become, to go through leadership training? And, and he said, one of the guys said, I'll tell you why it's expensive. I just want these guys to come in, do their job and go home at five o'clock, hmm. show up on time and leave. And another guy said, oh, I'll tell you why. My drivers uh, came to me and asked why they couldn't sell because they see customers every day and they're delivering things. And they are a grumbling bunch of uh, union stereotypes. And he said, so I put them to the test. I set up a, 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 a campaign where they could sell to clients. And within six months, they outsold my sales force. Wow. Wow. So Amazing. we've got all this resource that's waiting to be unleashed, and and it's just our attitude that blocks it. 
Gary Harps is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. The book is called Built to Beat Chaos, Biblical Wisdom for Leading Yourself and Others, whether you are a business owner or a pastor, an educator, or let's face it, just a parent, grandparent who's trying to instill these leadership principles into the lives of the people you care about. This book is a must read. That you conclude the book, uh, Gary, with a section on what effective leaders should be. It would not be fair for me to say, can you take me through these five points in four and a half minutes? I mean, that would be that would be horrible. But I love every one of these because growing up in America in the 1960s and 1970s, all of those five points that you list are things that were the exact opposite of what I was told, even through business school, that effective leaders do. Is there any of these um, that you would like to expand upon a little bit? Someone who cares, someone who's open and honest, builds oneness, takes ownership, masters mentoring. Uh, do any of these kind of, when you hear those five again, jump out and say, that's the most important one? The first one, it, these, by the way, are are sequential. And I think that's the thing. You know, wisdom okay. has to do with what you do in what order. Yeah. And um, caring unlocks the rest. And, uh, you know, there's 800,000 words in the Bible, and God really, Jesus said that uh, 22 words recap the whole Bible. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Yep. And it turns out that if you want to tap the capability of the people around you, you have to care and love them enough unilaterally. You love them because it's the right thing to do, not because of the way they treat you. Amen. And you do that it opens up the next step, which is an openness and an honesty. You talked about your relationship with your wife. It's, mm -hmm. it, when you know you care about somebody, you can trust them and you can start to be vulnerable and be open. And when that happens, then you can start to build a unity and a oneness. And so the first step is the most important. The others just fall naturally from doing the first step. Unfortunately, we do not love naturally. And the word in scripture is agape love, which comes from God himself. Uh, to love somebody because it's the right thing to do instead of the quid pro quo world we live in, I'll treat you right if you treat me right. Exactly. Is exactly the opposite of what God does. Mm. It's amazing how we get that out of order. And sometimes even in the body of Christ, we might go so far as to, to deify that. Hey, get rid of those people who don't treat you right because they're a dead weight. You know, they're they're an albatross. They're, they're keeping you from achieving what God wants you to achieve. Instead of saying, asking the question, why did God place this person in my path or me in their path? And yeah. what am I to learn from this level of obedience? Gary Harp's fascinating new book. It's called Built to Beat Chaos, Biblical Wisdom for Leading Yourself and Others. There's a link for the book up at the bottom line show. Dr. Gary, 60 seconds left. Who did you write this book for specifically outside of God's obedience? You know, the fact that you weren't planning on doing this. And he said, this is the one you're going to do. But who do you hope is, is going to pick this thing up, read it and benefit from it? I really wrote it for leaders, but I, I need to explain what I mean. I mean, a leader in God's vernacular is every single person on earth who has come to the point that they want to purposefully apply the resources he'd given them and um, to be an overcomer. Yeah. And you can do it. God has made you to do it. He's equipped you to do it. The book talks about how you're designed to do it. And our, the biggest enemy is we don't believe it. Amen. Amen. Well, this is a, a, a wonderful resource. I can't recommend it enough. I'm not surprised it has nothing but five-star ratings on Amazon. Uh, you're going to love this book too. Gary Harps, the book is called Built to Beat Chaos, Biblical Wisdom for Leading Yourself and Others. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And I'm going to get a copy for my daughter who just graduated uh, with a doctoral program from USC and say, this guy's Ohio State, but it's still really good stuff. So I, I'm sure Kaylee will appreciate that. 
<laughs> well, thank you, Roger, for all the good work you're doing. You're salt and light in this great world. What a great conversation with Dr. Gary Harpst today here on The Bottom Line. Uh, the book is called Built to Beat Chaos, and I, it's a great topic. Biblical Wisdom for Leading Yourself and Others. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and we do have a copy of the book to give away right now, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Again, we have a copy of Dr. Gary Harp's book, uh, Built to Beat Chaos. We also have a copy of the book by John and Marlene Strege about their daughter Hannah, called A Snowflake, called Hannah. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through there on the Bottom Line Show as well. And talk to Crystal. uh, Say nice things to her. She does a really great job (laughs) of doing the work that she does. Um, You know, when we think about the chaos that is happening in the world all around us right now, why not look to the God who brings order out of chaos? Why not, uh, for us as Christians— say there is a better way, there is a solution, and the solution's name is Jesus Christ. We know that God thrives in this order, an orderliness, and we as Christians would be welcome, or would be wise to remember that and to know that things are happening. I want to talk about something on the other side of this break that I think is uh, it's important because it helps us to see what happens when we attempt to bring order out of chaos, and not everybody is willing to participate. (laughs) We'll talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years. After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account, Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Thanks again to Dr. Gary Harpst for a fascinating conversation about how God brings order uh, into chaotic situations. The book, Built to Beat Chaos, Biblical Wisdom for Leading Yourself and Others, is up at thebottomlineshow.com, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800 the number to get you through to the bottom line. Talk about bringing order from chaos. Um, maybe you've been paying attention to this, uh, maybe not, but I just wanted to give you an opportunity to, uh, you know, to, to, to hear this straight from me with my thoughts on what happened over the weekend with regard to the so-called debt ceiling debate. Now, President Biden had a number of serious conversations with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy from right here in the Central Valley, and they reached an agreement in principle, as they described it late Saturday. The idea was federal spending, the debt crisis that's about to blow up, and the potential that the United States would possibly default uh, 
on some of their financial obligations. What would that do to the U.S.'s credit rating? What would that do? What, what kind of message? Well, a lot of it, I mean, to be perfectly frank, I mean, Dennis Wilson can give you more examples as to uh, what could potentially happen. But a lot of what was going on over the past couple of weeks was pretty just symbolic more than anything else. Uh, in terms of debt, the United States currently has on its books close to $32 trillion in debt that is never going to be paid back. Politicians will talk about how they want to pay it back and we want to be fiscally responsible, but they play the game where they wind up comparing uh, debt to deficit, and there's a big difference. i put it in family budget terms. If you have a budget for your household expenses of $2,000 a month, let's say, Most houses in Southern California, it's a lot more. But let's say you have a family household budget of $2,000 a month for expenses and you wind up uh, coming up one month with $2,500 of expenses. Well, you now have a budget deficit in that month. To remedy that, you have to go into debt to pay the expenses. So now you have a debt of $500 because you paid $2,000 on your expenses and you had $2,500 total. If you don't pay that $500 debt soon, the interest and penalties will pile up. If you keep having a deficit every month of having more expenses than having enough income to pay them, your debt will continue to pile up. Now, here's what politicians love to do. They love to play the percentage game and they love to play the debt versus deficit game. Here's how it works. You'd be amazed at the number of people in the 1990s who honestly thought that Bill Clinton balanced America's budget and canceled our federal debt. I'm serious. Balanced the budget and canceled the debt. How did he do that, you ask? Well, some of it was timing, some of it was accounting, and some of it was it never happened. (laughs) I mean, when the federal government sets out a budget. Let's say they're going to spend a trillion dollars in a year. If they spend a trillion dollars, then the federal deficit does not go up, or the federal debt doesn't, because there's no deficit for the year. If they spend more than a trillion dollars and they budgeted a trillion dollars, then the extra hundred billion or whatever goes into the pile, and over time it adds up. Prior to Bill Clinton taking office, the United States had a federal debt of around $5 trillion. When Bill Clinton left office, the U.S. had a debt of around $5 trillion. So you could make the case that Bill Clinton conceivably did not add to the federal debt during his eight years of president. And it's true. But let's go a step further. He didn't do that in terms of adding anything to the debt but did he so-called balance the budget? Well, here's the thing. Again, back to that federal budget. If your annual budget back then was a trillion dollars, it's way higher than this now, and you only spent $500 billion of that, then guess what? You don't have a budget surplus per se, but you do have a reduced deficit. Now, it'd be amazing the number of people who, if you said, okay, we were going to do a trillion dollar budget and we only spend $500 billion, so therefore we have a surplus. They think that means extra money. 
What happened in Bill Clinton's years were some great accounting. They closed some military establishments, lowered operating expenses there. Those were big write-downs, if you will. But remember, at the end of the day, he started in office in 1993 with $5 trillion in debt And he left office in 2001 with $5 trillion in debt. So he did not reduce the federal debt. But he ran fewer budget deficits than his predecessors did. And that led people to believe that there was actually money lying around. How many times did you hear this with George W. Bush? President Bush started out as president in January of 2001 uh, there's 9-11 that happens in September, and then he goes to war, and next thing you know, well, Bill Clinton had a big budget surplus every year, and George Bush is spending us into oblivion. Well, on the budget deficit side, eh, there was no pile of cash sitting around. But on the budget de- uh, debt, absolutely. George W. Bush took office January 2001, $5 trillion in debt. By the time he left office, the debt was anywhere between 8 and $10 trillion, depending on the accounting. And that's because President Obama came in in the middle of a recession, right smack dab in the middle of the final year fiscally of George W. Bush's presidency, and said, we're going to add a trillion dollars in federal spending. And knowing that all of that trillion dollars would be counted as a deficit against George W. Bush, who was the president on October 1st, 2000, when that budget was approved. The following year, President Obama then said, "Okay, we're not going to spend a trillion dollars. We're only going to spend 700. See, I just cut 30 percent of our spending. Oh, wow, we cut this. Well, it's kind of like buying diamonds at a jewelry store, friends. When they say our jewelry is up to 80 percent off the retail price, that means the retail prices are inflated by about 8000 percent. But back to the budget deficit situation with the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden. Do you know what some of the sticking points were? I mean, I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to talk about two of the sticking points that are just fascinating. And don't, you know, this is a do as I say, not as I do moment from the White House. That's coming up next as the bottom line continues. You know the old expression, a picture is worth a thousand words? Well, if you're an expectant mom and you go to a pregnancy health center that is in partnership with Preborn, one picture can say way more than that. And that picture I'm talking about is an ultrasound picture. Every donation that goes to Preborn goes to providing ultrasounds for women who are expecting children and they want to know what all of their options are. When you call 833-850-BABY right now, you give a gift of $28 that provides one ultrasound. But if you give a gift toward the purchase of an ultrasound machine, now that's a $15,000 investment, but every ultrasound machine can do 250 ultrasounds per year and last a minimum of 10 years. That's 2,500 ultrasounds available to women right now. Think of all the babies, thousands of babies' lives that will be saved by your donation to Preborn right now. Call 833-850-BABY. 833-850-BABY. That's 833-850-2229. Make your best donation right now. $50, $100. Maybe you want to give $15,000. It's completely tax deductible. We've had a couple of bottom line listeners step up and do just that. 833-850-BABY. 833-850-BABY. That's 833-850-2229. Call Preborn right now. 
Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. We're still taking your calls for uh, Built, uh, the beautiful book by Dr. Gary Harps. I say beautiful because I love the idea of bringing order out of a chaotic situation. And Gary's book, Built to Beat Chaos, Biblical Wisdom for Leading Yourself and Others, is up at thebottomlineshow.com. And it, uh, it helps us. It helps us as Christians really live out biblical Christianity by being peacemakers, not peacekeepers, and by building order out of chaos. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Okay, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy from right here in the Central Valley and President Biden struck a deal in principle over the weekend. There are two things that jump out at me in this budget, uh, well, the debt ceiling spending, that I think are worth noting. First, the fact that, well, overall, the fact that this is a two-year deal guarantees that anybody running for president or Senate or Congress or anything like that is not going to have to worry about having these kinds of negotiations again until the next president is duly elected and well ensconced in the office. But here are the two sticking points, and tell me if these seem kind of weird to you. Sticking point number one for Democrats was they did not like the idea of having corresponding cuts for increases in spending. In other words, if you were spending a trillion dollars on social programs and you wanted to up it to $1.3 trillion, then you'd have to come up with $300 billion in cuts somewhere else. We do that with our household budgets all the time. Hey, want to go to a movie? I don't know. What's in the envelope for the Dave Ramsey? The envelope for entertainment. Um, 20 bucks. Okay. Well, why don't we let that sit for a month and we'll use it for the next month? Or maybe we'll take money out of the clothing budget and do an entertainment thing or whatever it is. Fungibility, the money can go from one account to the other. But the idea is you place a hold on spending. Democrats were passionately against that because they're so afraid of telling their constituents we're going to have to cut a social program that you love. That's the first part point of contention for me. The second point of contention is something that goes back to the Bill Clinton, Newt Gingrich days of 1994, the Workfare to Welfare, or excuse me, Welfare to Workfare program, where healthy, able-bodied Americans who were receiving unemployment for a prolonged period of time, and of course with COVID, the more and more people were actually doing so, but the question is, how long does that person just get unemployment without actually either looking for work, starting a training program for another type of career, or actually going to college? Up until this debt agreement, which is going to get signed by the Senate as well, was up for discussion, the age was age 50. So anybody age 50 and 51 and older who was receiving that kind of benefit didn't have to look for a job didn't have to go for retraining. Basically, the government was saying, you're done. You can get unemployment until you could find a way to get Social Security disability, and then you could start taking that early, and you're done. We're going to put you out to pasture. I don't know about you, but some of my best days happened after my 50th birthday. As a matter of fact, on my 50th birthday, I received the email from Don Crawford Sr. with the contract offer to host the bottom line. First of all, it tells you how old I am. But secondly, why do we have this notion that people over 50 are put out to pasture? All the GOP said was we want to raise that age to 55. In other words, anybody between the ages of 50 and 55 
should be required to look for work, take a training course, go to community college, do something if you're receiving unemployment. Democrats said, no, you can't possibly do that. We don't have any trouble saying full retirement age is 67 and soon it will be 70. But if you're over 50 and you're on unemployment, well, you're pretty much done. That was crazy. By the way, if you want to beat this kind of game with the government, please call Dennis Wilson at Wilson Financial. Please make sure that you have invested in a phone call to Dennis's team to find out about tax-free or as tax-free as you can get retirement strategies that are not beholden to crazy whims of the government like this. 800-696-9970. Call Dennis and his team. You may have a 401k or an IRA. Maybe your company has a pension plan and you're saying, Roger, I'm good. I don't need to worry about it. I urge you to call Dennis's team and see what they can do for you in terms of helping you say, hey, you know that 401k? Two things about it. Number one, with the stock market going down, that 401k, as we like to say, is about to become a 201k. And secondly, if you're thinking about leaving that to your kids and saying, hey, there's $300,000 in this account, so I've got three kids, that's hundred grand for each one, the tax laws have changed, and now that 401k or IRA is a ticking tax time bomb. And that's the result of the tax law that was signed in by Donald Trump. Call Dennis. Take your own financial matters into your own hands. You don't get to be the government and keep raising your debt limit whenever you want to. 800-696-9970. Remember, at the end of the day, all the resources that you have came from God. How will you steward them? That's the bottom line.